everybody. Good to see you tonight. Thanks for coming. And I appreciate what Charlie said there at the end and kind of a parallel thought. We have so much ministry that goes on during the week that you never hear about. Uh, not, I don't mean just officially sanctioned by our church, whatever that means. Uh, the ministry is in the hands of the people. We help organize it. But uh, so many things that are happening that uh, you and I never hear about. But we'll hear about the judgment seat one day. And I want to thank you uh, for your faithfulness to do that. And uh, I honor you for that. I want you to open your Bible tonight to Philippians chapter 1. And we'll look at uh, a little section in chapter 2. But we'll not look in depth at some things. I just kind of want to give you an introduction, introductory thought this evening. I want to talk to you about keys to unity. When I was in Bible college, I remember uh, the dean of the seminary, uh, Douglas Cravens. He did our um, marital counseling for Paula, premarital counseling for Paula and I. She needed the marital counseling. I needed the premarital counseling. I did good. After that, it was real good. And I know some of that went over there, but that's okay. And so uh, he was a very good man, a little short fellow like this, godly man. And just up the street from us, uh, from our dormitory, uh, there was a horrific car accident. And so it was a, not a large campus, so word spread quickly. And uh, when we arrived there, they had already taken them in the ambulance. And I remember it was a, a large kind of a white car. I'm not a car guy, so I don't know the, the make and model. But it was upside down. I remember that. And it was in a residential area. They had to have been hit very hard. And I remember seeing blood there on the scene and knowing that this, this is not a good thing. And sure enough, his wife passed away in the accident. And he was hospitalized for a long time and could not perform his duties. And then uh, a while later, months and months later, Dr. Robertson asked him to speak in chapel. We had chapel three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And if I were to look back at my my days in college, those were really some of the highlights to bring here uh, some of the greatest preachers in America have my my soul fed and my life shaped. I really appreciate those times. And so he introduced Dr. Cravens. He had gotten well enough to be around. And again, this is months and months after the accident, maybe seven months or so. And he alluded to the accident. And uh, it was very, very quiet in that auditorium with uh, several thousand young people. And so he, he gave a brief uh, testimony. That's kind of what it was more than a message buttressed by scriptures. And I've shared this with you before, but he made a, a statement and a quote that I wrote down in his message about gratitude and kind of where he was at with all of this. Here's what he said. He said, uh, young people, you'll never miss the water till the well runs dry. And I was young. I was uh, a kid. But I thought, that's, that's a lot of wisdom right there. And he's had a great loss. And I'm going to pay attention to that. Because I'm going to be there one day, and I want to appreciate the water while I have it. You'll never miss the water till the well runs dry. Uh, don't we attend, uh, tend to assume upon our blessings and uh, just take them for granted. And then we don't realize what we have until it's gone. And I, I don't know that... Uh, it's just part of us. And then even when we hold something precious, it becomes more precious when it's gone. 
I want to take that statement and just uh, take the same idea and put another word in there. And it's this word. You never miss unity until it's gone. We assume upon communion, we assume upon friendship, we assume upon good relationships. But when it's gone in a family, when it's gone in a church, when it's gone in a community of people, boy, you can tell it. And maybe you you were together at one time and people were all on the same page. People are in harmony, but when that is gone, you can really tell it. You never miss unity until it's gone. And one of the things that, uh, as a pastor here, I've tried to do is to, to help. Uh, I'm not totally responsible for this, but to some degree I am. To help to protect the unity of this local church. And I do that by, by teaching on these matters and helping you to know what you're supposed to do and so forth. And that's the next se- section of Scripture we'll look at here. The church of Philippi was a, a good church. It was a healthy church. If you look at verse 3... Notice Paul's heart toward them. We quote these verses sometimes. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy when I do pray for you. You bring joy to my heart and mind. Making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And as you study the book, there were no doctrinal abnormalities to correct. It was a Orthodox church. There were no moral issues to address, but there was one matter at the church of Corinth that he had to deal with, and there were two ladies that had a division. And apparently it was so significant that he had to address it in this letter. He heard as Epaphroditus came back to prison, came back from Philippi, and told him about the good things. And then also told him, he said, but I have something sad to tell you. Paul would have known these ladies. He said, they're not getting along. And I'm filling in a little bit here. But it's beginning to infect the church. And you say, well, preacher, if that's not in there, why do you know that? Well, here, here's why I'm surmising on that. Why would he deal with it if they could work it out themselves? So people apparently had begun to take sides. And, and it, it was at a threat where that it could really affect the impetus of the church. And notice in chapter 4, if you would, look at verse 2. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2. And he waits until the end to deal with, I beseech Euodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And notice he, the word beseech means to plead with. It's not a, it's not a commanding word. It has the idea of getting on your knees and begging. And a very gracious kind uh, word there. He said, I'm pleading with you. And, and he uses the word before both of their names. I plead with you. I plead with you. You're not of the same mind in the Lord. Now here's a passage that we're going to look at here, God willing, uh, in the next coming weeks. But you'll look at it with me. Look at Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. The, the greatest passage in the Bible on unity and how to maintain unity. By the way, this is for the church, but this is for your marriage. This will work in your family. It will work anywhere. Philippians chapter 2, look at verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, uh, 
Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, when the devil wants to destroy the church, he uses primarily two methods. The first is on the outside, and that's through persecution. And what he doesn't realize, even after all of these centuries, that that just purifies the church. And it makes the church stronger. But he he tries to persecute God's people and persecute the true church and get them to conform to the world and, and does some things externally. But the more insidious way, the more successful way is on the inside. And that's primarily through two ways, through false teaching and then also through division. Um, There are two images of the devil that we see in the Bible, a lion and a serpent. If he can't destroy us as a roaring lion externally, everybody's afraid of being persecuted. We're afraid of going to jail if we live in other parts of the world, we'd be afraid of being beheaded. As we think about it, some of them aren't. But we're afraid of the lion. But I'm going to tell you, the lion may have slain his thousands, but the serpent has slain his tens of thousands. But the serpent is internal. And while we're giving attention to something else on the inside, gossip and slander and negativity and bad attitudes have their way until the church becomes gradually splintered. Uh, Notice his appeal, and I'm going to reference some of these later with different words. But look at this in chapter 1. Look at verse 27. We looked at this uh, earlier, but notice his heartfelt plea for unity. Philippians 1, 27, Only let your conversation, and I've taught you that, the way you live, your lifestyle, be as it becometh, as becometh a Christian, the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. That ye, watch this, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now you can't get any more emphasis on unity than that. Look at it again, the second part of the verse. I want you to stand fast with one spirit, with one mind, striving together. He hits it three times there, for the faith of the gospel. This is not just to give an appearance to the world. This is because we're we're on mission. We're to get the gospel out. We're to make disciples. But here's what he says. You can't do that if you're not in unity. Orthodoxy and zeal and past blessings are no guarantee of unity. You can have a good track record in the past, and your doctrinal statement can be accurate to the T, biblically. But that doesn't mean you'll have unity. Division is usually centered around petty and silly issues. You've heard the stories. Months ago, I was listening to Warren Wiersbe uh, preach. I I enjoy hearing him. He feeds my soul. And so I listened to sermons during the week. I know Daniel does to to help us uh, grow. He told me one day, he said, Rick, I'm not benefiting from you. I need these other guys. I said, you know, Daniel, that's okay. When I hear you, I have the same vibes. And so, you know. Give us five there. 
And so both of us do that uh, to grow. Uh, we're praying for Tim that he would do this. <laughs> Anyhow, I need to get back. Uh, I've got a silly gene tonight. Um, but Warren Wiersbe was telling in, in, this, uh, in this message, when he, when he had the church, it was a church he was at before he went to Moody Church. He said that the church began to grow there in Covington, Kentucky. And God was blessing, and, and they didn't know what to do with their children. And that's a good sign we have these children, and they didn't have any places to put them. So they needed a room, a new room to put the kids in. Well, he said, here was the problem. The ladies' Sunday school class had occupied that room for 20 years. And so he had enough wisdom to know. You know, he met with them, said, hey, we're going to need this room. We'll find you a, 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 another room, a good room, acceptable room. We've got to have this to be able to fulfill the mandate of the church. And boy, there was a, I won't go into all of it with you, but there was a big problem. Uh, many of them got mad. They stopped coming to church because they couldn't have their room where they had Sunday school and church. I wonder, I wonder how that's going to stand one day at the judgment seat of Christ with the pierced open wounds, not scars, the pierced open wounds of Jesus. How in the world do we, do we dare fight these battles? Then I heard this is a true story of a church where one faction of the church, they got so angry with the other faction that they, they brought a lawsuit against them. I don't even know how you do this, but they did. They, they met with an attorney, they, they drew up the papers, and they brought a lawsuit against the other group because of a disagreement. You know what the disagreement was? They renovated the auditorium, and they had a disagreement on which side to put the piano. I promise. I promise. And because they, they could not agree on which side to put the piano, then it w- became so heated that the group that didn't win, they sued the others. And I'm not saying the group that didn't sue was in the right either. I'm just simply saying this, that, that we, we get upset and we divide over, over the most silliest, petty issues. I don't know. I'm sure there have been. I, I'm thinking right now. I don't know that I know of, of churches that have split over doctrinal issues. I know some churches that have broken over some liberalism because of association with uh, conventions they've been in. But I, I don't know that I know individual churches that have split because of liberalism. I, I'm sure there have been some. But I know plenty of churches that has split over insignificant matters where people have been hurt. And what they don't realize, here's what they don't realize, the power the power brokers. By the way, the power broker is God. But the power brokers is that their kids are watching. And if not their kids, somebody else's kids are watching. And do you know what happens to those kids? I can tell you because I've seen it happen. They don't go back to church. And it's not because they can't defend an apologetic. It's because they saw behavior in church and attitudes and so forth. And they said, I, uh, that's not for me. I think I've had enough of that. Well, when they get old enough, they, they just don't go back. Because what we had wasn't real. So unity is a very powerful thing. Not only does God's people, should we be in unity, but wicked people use unity to accomplish their goals. It was so powerful, the, the manner of unity, that God came down 
and he stopped people in the, in the early part of creation that were in unity and they were about to accomplish their goal. They were rebellion against God and God said, no, we're going to stop that. Notice in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 6, look at this. And the Lord said, behold, the people is one. Look at that. The people is one. They spoke the same language. They were together. They have all one language. And this they began to do to build this tower to heaven. And it was more than just a, a building. It represented false religion. It, it, it represented rebellion against the authority of God. And here's what the Godhead said. And now nothing will be restrained from them. Look at that. Whenever you have people that are in unity, whether they're wicked or whether they're good, but I'm going to tell you, God's people have the agency and the energy of the Holy Spirit. But even wicked people, when they're in unity and they're speaking the same language, nothing will be restrained from them. This is God speaking, which they have imagined to do. Here's one of the references in Scripture to the Trinity. Go to let us, let us go down. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God manifest in three persons. Let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. It's important that we, we speak the same language. I, I don't know if you, you noticed, but I got my hair cut this week. And uh, she was drunk and I, I didn't know it or I wouldn't have gone in. I'm just kidding. But she, she was excited, and she said, she told me a story about one of the people that come here and get their hair cut. And I knew something should have been up when I heard this story. But she said, uh, I told Paula about it last night. She said, there, there's a fellow that I cut his hair, and he was in Russia on a trip. And she said he got there in the hotel, and he needed to get his hair cut. And he couldn't speak Russian. He had very little communication skills. With people that were there. And so um, he found out there was a barber shop down in the lobby. You know, that's unusual here in America, but I guess overseas. Hoss gets his hair cut over in Turkey a lot. He likes the way they do it over there. But anyhow, so the guy went downstairs in the lobby in Russia to get his hair cut. Well, he started talking to the people. <laughs> he told the, the barber, my barber, I, I had no way to communicate with him. I couldn't write. I couldn't talk. So I had to use my hands. You know, a haircut, scissors, you know, ah, yeah, or whatever they say. And, you know, and he said, uh, cut this much, this much. Ah, yeah. So they gave him an American magazine. He's sitting there in the chair and, you know, reading. They finish and he looks up. And that's how much hair she left on his head. She cut all the hair off except that. And I told the little lady to cut my hair. I said, well, they did exactly what he said, didn't they? <laughs> cut this much. And when we, when we don't communicate well, it disturbs our unity. Now, I know this on, on teams in sports world. A team that is in unity will, will beat a more gifted team every time. In fact, you don't need to have the best team. You can have lesser players, but if you're in unity, you will beat the more talented team because it's better than having a group or collection of talented people when you have unified people. That's why it's important even in a church. We don't need to have the strongest people or the most gifted people. 
We need to have the most surrendered people that are in unity to the will of God. Winston Churchill said this. Here's what he said. It's a good statement. When there is no enemy within, the enemies outside cannot hurt you. That's true. When there is no enemy within, the enemies outside cannot hurt you. And I think sometimes, as the cartoon says, we have found the enemy and the enemy is us. And we hurt ourselves. We, we damage the precious unity that God has, has given to the church. Or we hurt our families. Brothers hurt brothers. Sisters hurt sisters. And parents hurt each other. They hurt their children. You hurt your parents. You hurt your in-laws. Unnecessary, even silly things, petty things. Like I said before, unity is misunderstood sometimes because of the way that it's defined. It's not defined properly. Listen carefully. Unity is not forced or coerced. It's not when everybody has the same characteristics. If you read Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12, the Bible says that the body, which is one of the metaphors God has for the church, is diverse. We have different gifts, we have different people, we have different personalities. But when, when, the, when you have that diversity and you have unity and maturity, you make progress. And every time in those three passages, you find those three characteristics. Diversity, maturity, and unity. Those things are important to God. That's why I preach so much on maturity. I preach a lot on it. I, I bet 90... 90 to 95% of my messages are on that. What good does it do if you behave right, if your heart is not right? Because if you're mature, you'll, you'll seek the right things. Unity is not uniformity. We get the word uniform from uniformity. It means everyone and everything is exactly alike. We look alike. And so it appears externally that well, everybody's in unity because they have the same, quote, uniform. I don't mean that literally. But uniformity. They speak the same language. And uh, they kind of do the same things. You know, this church does it this way. And the next church does it exactly in the next church. And so we think, well, that there's a unity there of fellowship. Well, people can do things different ways. That, that doesn't mean you have unity. That's just uniformity. You can dress your kids. We have seven. If you have two, this is true. You can dress your kids exactly alike. And you can have uniformity and not have unity. Uniformity is not unity. Unity is different than uniformity. It is, listen, it is not external, a result of what is imposed on you or you impose on others. There are external characteristics. Unity is not external. Unity is internal. It's what happens in your heart. You either choose to be in unity or out of unity. The basis of unity is what happened to you when you became a Christian. Unity is found in Christ. Period. If you're out of unity, you're, you're, you're out of a personal relationship with God. It means you're not right with God. In fact, look at Philippians 2. I showed it to you. Look there again. Philippians 2. Look at verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation, notice the next two words, in Christ. And then he goes on to give some characteristics. So unity is organic. 
when you get saved, you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. That means you receive the Holy Spirit. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The moment you got saved, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to speak a foreign language. You received Him. And you have a desire and you have the capability to be in unity. Not to wear the same uniform, but to be in fellowship and tune on the same page with the Spirit of God and with the children of God. So unity has nothing to do with external factors. There will be external manifestations, and we'll look at some of those. But at the core of unity, there are internal factors. This will help your marriage. It will help your relationship with your friends. It will help you with everything. You can have the best organization and detailed flow charts and not have unity in a church. That doesn't fix everything. Well, what we need to do is we need to have better communication. We'll line this up. No, it's internal. You don't understand that. Now, you can fix up some things where the flow will be better. That's not going to fix it. That doesn't fix a bad attitude. You understand? You can have people agreeing to the same doctrinal statement, attending the same church, and not have unity. A doctrinal statement doesn't fix it. I've told you a thousand times that the devils believe and tremble. Satan has a, a more accurate doctrinal statement than you and I do. He believes the truth. He lies about it, but he knows what the truth is. You can have people that look alike, they use the same terminology, but they're divided and they cause divisions. And that's true. People that are divided, they cause divisions. But unity is possible because of what Jesus has done for us. That's why we have unity. I think sometimes we, we kind of preach for the external factors. Now, come on, everybody get along. Now, come on, stop. Everybody come around. Let's gather together. Let, let's be in unity. Let's say it. Ready? I'm going to count to three. Everybody say unity, and we'll say break. One, two, three. Unity, break. There we go. We got it. Now, I'm, I'm being a little cynical there, but I think sometimes we think that fix it with our kids. Tell them you're sorry. Hug his neck. Okay. And you know, after about the thousandth time, that's not working because it's internal. And it's internal in the church, too. We're only able to love, to be patient, and to forgive because Jesus loves, lives in us. I, I, I'm not going to love my wife properly or love my kids or love you properly without the love of God. I cannot forgive until I know that He's forgiven me. I'm not going to be patient with people that wound me until I realize how often I've wounded him. And how, how, what right do I have to get impatient with others? Because of what Jesus has done for us. Unity is not solved by, or disunity is not solved by rules, threats, or external motivation. You can't do that. It won't work with your kids, and it's not going to work in the church. It doesn't work. Unity is based, listen, on what is in your heart, in your mind, because that's what produces your actions and your words. It's internal. And that's where Jesus lives. Uh, let me show you just a few words here in Philippians, if you would. Notice in chapter 1 and verse 27. Look at this. Look at the last part of it. He says that you stand fast in one spirit, look at this, with one mind. Striving together with one mind. You see it? Now look at chapter 2 and verse 2. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded. The same love being of one accord, of one mind. Two times there, like-minded, one mind. Are you getting the picture here? 
And then when he talks to these two ladies, did you pick that up? Look at chapter 4 and verse 2 of Philippians. I beseech you, Odious, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. That's where the problem was. It was their heart. It was the way they were thinking. It was their selfishness. Holding on to wounds. Holding on to not being able to get their way or whatever the issue is. I remember having meetings in my office with people that weren't getting along. And I knew it It doesn't work with kids. It's not going to work with adults because the problem is inside. Well, what you need to do is just shake hands and let's give the old college try. It doesn't work. People that, that are hurt tend to cause division because their heart's been wounded and they're misunderstood. And until they get that bitterness taken care of, they're, they're going to spill out on other people. It's dangerous. A church that had a lot of problems, Second Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11, look at this. Finally, brethren, be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind. You see that? These are, this is what he's telling them, his last words to the church. Be of one mind. Live in peace. Those things go together. You want to live in peace? Be of one mind. You've got to, you've got to want what the other wants. And it's not about being a doormat. This is about living the way Jesus did. And the God of love, and I'm going to interpolate here, and the God of peace shall be with you. He's not just a God of love. He is a God of peace. I'm going to tell you something. My personality does not deal well with tension. But I'll tell you something else. Yours doesn't either. If you're godly. Because if the God of peace lives in you, when there's dissension, you don't function correctly. Because if he's in you, it's not natural. And there's something wrong when someone goes around, they begin to divide things. I'm not, this is more preventative than corrective. I don't know of anything in our church like this, but... I'm giving you what realities are. And people go around, they're causing problems because they're hurt, they're angry, there's a lack of forgiveness. And the love of God is absent, the peace of God. And it's like a missile going for its target. I love these verses because they're so practical. We don't have time to talk much about it. But just look at it with me. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. First Peter 3, 8. Finally, be all... Of one mind. There it is again. Be of one mind. And while you're doing that, while you're thinking of them, and you're trying to go together, uh, having compassion one of another, sit in the other person's shoes. Love his brethren. They relate to each other. Remember what Abraham told Lot when they're about to be divided? He said, you take whatever you want. We'd be brethren. I, I'd rather... You take advantage of me, then I take advantage of you. We're brothers. Be pitiful. Have pity on people. Be courteous. Boy, powerful stuff there. Lingering disagreements, anger, division are evidences of a spiritual problem. In a church, you cannot implement rules and create unity. You can't do that in your business. Now, you have to implement policies, I understand that, but it's not going to create unity. 
Have you ever thought about, one man said this one time. He said the greatest, the greatest leadership happens in nonprofit organizations. And here was his logic. He said, when you, when you go to your work, if you don't perform, you're gone. So the boss dangles promotions. He dangles bonuses. He dangles all these other things, pay scales and stuff. That's out there, and you better line up. When you go to a church, what does the church offer you but the love of God and fellowship with the people? And really, the best job for the leader is not to get out in front of the people. It's to be one of the people and making sure that as the shepherd would tend them, that they're going in the right direction and they're eating the right food. You cannot legislate love. I can't make you love your family. Well, preacher, you don't know what they did to me. No, I don't. I know what I did to Jesus. I still do to him sometimes. I know that. I know what you do, what you do. Now, not exactly, but I know you do some things. You crucify him afresh in and out. You cannot legislate love. There must be repentance. Because at the root of division is selfishness and pride every time. Every time. James wrote, and he said, James chapter 4 and verse 1. From whence or where come wars and fightings among you? Where's all this trouble? Where are all these, all these fights in society? Where's all these church splits happening? Now, this is, these are external wars that are evidenced. We see the byproducts. So he's asking the question, where, where are these wars and fightings, arguments coming from? And then he asks a rhetorical question, but he gives an answer. Come they not hence... And he goes from external to internal. Come they not hence, even of your lust, of your desires, that war, it's another kind of a war, in your members, in your body. You see, there are external wars because there's an internal war. If my wife and I have an argument, uh, somebody's at fault, and it's usually both of us. If you have an argument with your brother and sister, Brother or sister, it's not like, well, they're, they're totally in the wrong. No, we have a war in us where I want to be right, I'm misunderstood, or whatever the issue is. James chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. But if you have bitter envying and strife, look where it is, in your hearts. Bitterness, envy, strife, but it all comes out, lie not. Glory not, lie not against the truth. This wisdom, this way of living, look at this. It descendeth not from God, from above. Where did it come from? But it's earthly, that's the world. Sensual, that's the flesh and devilish. You're just captured by the world, the flesh and the devil. When you live that way. And so you can institutionalize. You can put grips on people. Now, okay, I'm going to have to come back, tighten up on you. Sometimes when our kids would struggle, you know, mom, moms tend to have a little more compassion. And I hope I do. But they want to fix it right now. We got to fix it. We got to fix it. And, uh, and the men, at least me, I'm saying, well, what do you want me to do? I mean, I, I don't know what to do. 
But I realize, and I've been able to help Paula with that when she's concerned. I say, look, only God can fix this. Only God can fix this. This is, God shapes the heart. Our hearts are in the hand of God. God can do this. You can't legislate love. You can't legislate righteousness. You can't legislate submission. That's why, listen, um, unity is a matter of your heart. It's a matter of maturity. And then the last verse there in James 3, for we're, look at this, for where envy and strife is. Remember it came in your heart and it's manifested externally. Here it is. There is confusion and every evil work. And we see that in local churches. Confusion in every evil work. I could go in there. I don't have time. Proverbs 13.10, only by pride cometh contention. Only by pride cometh contention. One of the reasons that God blessed the early church is they were in unity. I mean, you read about it all the time. Eleven times in 28 chapters, the phrase one accord is used. And they prayed for several weeks before they were just by themselves for 120 days. And they just prayed and they prayed and they prayed. What were they doing? You ever thought about that? They were confessing their sins. They were cleaning their hearts up from pride, competition, comparison, externalism. And I believe, this is my personal belief, I wouldn't argue over it. I believe the church had already started in John 20. When Jesus breathed on them and he said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. I think that's when the church was indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, preacher, what was Acts 2? What was Pentecost? I think that was the empowering of the church based on their surrender. I don't think the church started in Acts 2. I wouldn't argue about it. But it makes sense to me when I study it that way. And that's when the church was empowered. That's when Peter was changed, when he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2. Look at it real quick. Philippians 2, 2. Fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love. And here it is, being of one accord. Of one accord. I remember when, uh, let's see. President Carter and some other presidents, they try to get these opposing nations together, and they call it an accord. We're going to have this accord. You know what that means? It's an agreement of one agreement. We're in agreement on our mission. We're in agreement that we're going to love. We're going to forgive. We're going to defer. We're going to practice deference. Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. This is when they're praying, and these all... Continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. They were in unity while they prayed. So which came first, the chicken or the egg? Were they in unity after they prayed or did they pray in unity? Well, sometimes it's both. But here it says they were in unity as they prayed. And maybe it was as a result of them confessing their sins. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord. They were all in agreement. God had cleansed their hearts. They were prepared to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2 and verse 46. And they continued, continuing daily with one accord in the temple. And I'll just give you one more. There are more than this. I'm almost finished. Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart. Look at this. In one soul. 
one heart and one soul. Yeah, I mean, is that your life? Is that, is that our church? And people can look and say, well, um, that's not them. But then is that you? Do you forgive? What are you clinging on to? Are you talking about people? Are you contributing to the fault lines in the church? D.L. Moody said this, I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. I think he's, true. I think he's right on there. The Bible indicates that. Unity is important. It's important for us, but it's important to God. Psalm 133 and verse 1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. You want to experience goodness? You want a pleasant Christmas? You want pleasant birthday gatherings? Now, I know sometimes you can't control all the factors. I understand. You want to have a good church? You want to have a pleasant church atmosphere? How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Well, I bring my part to this every Sunday when I walk in back there. And it all starts with who I am in the home and when I get in the car. Am I I in union and unity with with the Lord? Am I in unity with my family? And am am I bringing a fractured soul and a negative heart to church with me? And it just becomes a mess. We need to grow up. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We don't create it, but we're we're to keep it. The Holy Spirit gives us unity, but we are to endeavor. That's a very strong word. It's worth the effort to keep the unity. And here's a word for us. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. That's just a poetic way of expressing a, a poem feature here in the book of Proverbs. What are these things? A proud look, a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies. And here's the seventh one. And he that soweth discord, and notice the last two words, among brethren. Not just sows discord. Now when you sow something, there's always a reaping time. God it's it's not just a sin, it's abomination. It is a special hatred that God has for people that sow discord among the brethren. And we do that by our words and by our body language. So what are we supposed to do? Well, Romans sixteen seventeen. this is our instructions. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions. The word mark means to clearly identify. There comes a time when you, you exercise church discipline on people like this. Now, you, you give some space. You give them opportunities. You don't do it without notifying them. But there comes a time when you mark them. By the way, you, you need to know who they are. You say, well, why do you do that? And the rest of the verse says, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. And look, it's, and avoid them. The word means to shun. It means to go out of the way, to deviate from Don't spend time with them. You're not better than anybody. I'm not better than anybody. 
But if I don't want my soul, my mind, if, if unity is having one heart and one soul and mind, I don't want it contaminated. There's no telling because I don't want to know uh, the stuff that's been told about me in these 30 plus years. But I don't talk about it much because I don't think about it. And I don't worry about it. Because that's one of the things about a leader. A leader is going to be criticized. But it can reach a level where, as God's people, where people begin to dismantle Daniel or Tim or Randy or whoever it is. You need, you need to defend them. Friends defend their people when they're not present. They do. And you know this. If someone will speak about someone to your face, they will talk about you behind your back every time. Mark them. This is the Word of God. Titus chapter 3 and verse 10. A man that is an heretic. The word heretic means one that causes division. After the first and second admonition, giving two chances, hey, we want you to stop that. You need to stop that. This is wrong. You're, you're hurting the church. You're hurting the family here. After you've given him advanced times to, a couple of times to repent, the Bible says reject. You know what that means? It means to decline and avoid. Hey, we're going out. You want to go? No, no, thank you. And don't spend, don't spend quality time with them. Now, you need to be a Christian gentleman, but there's some times when, when it, it requires firmness. And no, you, you, you've gotten to the place where when I'm with you, everything's negative. I love you, but I, I, I can't fill my mind up with that. I'm not better than you. And they may get angry, but, you know, that's one of the ways. It talks about in Proverbs about um, an angry countenance will drive away Wicked words. Sometimes we need that. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is Satan's policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He attaches far more significance to godly fellowship than we do. Since union, look at this, since union is strength. Satan does his best to promote separation. Who are you separated from tonight? Or who are you separating? Three statements. Number one, unity is important to God. It's really important to God. Because the church is precious to Him. Number two, unity is important for a church. And it's important for your family. You can cultivate the environment. But because it's a matter of the heart, sometimes you've got to focus on your maturity and teach your family to be mature. And then thirdly, unity comes from God and our submitting to Him. Because everything's not going to go the way that you want it to go. It's just not going to. Decisions are going to be made by other people that you're not going to agree with. And you're not going to like everything. Um... You'd be surprised how many decisions I do not make here. I delegate a lot of stuff. And uh, so, God help us. I hope you'll spend some time there in the early part of Philippians 2. And we'll dig into this a little deeper. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father.